This is Dangerous Vision, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I met someone just the other day. I met someone who didn't have a podcast. There are 700,000 podcasts out there. The head of the radio reading service came to me again and said, you know, I think you two should do a show. Few have been doing this longer than Peter Torpy and Nancy Goodman Torpy. Their first broadcast started in 2011. So that's, that's got to be close to a world record for continuous podcasting, right? Because the whole concept isn't much older than that. For the host of the Ira podcast, this is a dream come true. So I had always wanted to be in radio. I was a nerdy kid. In this week's Dangerous Vision, it's all about the podcast. It's a, it's a good medium for the blind. We have parlayed this into a whole lot of work. First up, Nancy and Pete from Eyes on Success. Obviously, I want to ask you about uh, the podcast. So, so uh, first off, just uh, tell, me, tell me how it got started. Oh, well, this could be a longer story, but it all started <laughs> when our friend Bob suggested that, you know, everybody hates the fund drive on the public radio station. He says, but it's much more fun if you're one of the people answering the phone. So the two of us went in to answer the mm -hmm. phone for the fund drive. And of course, Pete needed some adaptive equipment because there's a computer interface so he could take, take down the information of whoever happened to call his telephone. And everybody in the station wandered by to see how this blind guy was handling what was really a pretty trivial computer interface. And the answer was just fine. And so um, eventually the head of the radio reading service that was associated with the um, public radio station cornered me in the hall and she said, you know, one of our sound engineers needs help with scripts so that he can work with the next version of the software that he needs to use to do the sound engineer job. Can Pete help? So, of course, Pete could help. And we were in the station over and over and over getting the requirements, establishing what he was going to do. He got them all set up. Everything was terrific. Then I started as a volunteer reader, just as a substitute. And one day, the head of the radio reading service came to me again and said, you know, I think you two should do a show because Pete's really knowledgeable. You both like to talk. You speak well. You should do a show. And it took us about six months to say yes. And really, her concept was much simpler. We have parlayed this into a whole lot of work. And um, that uh, we aired our first episode the first week of January 2011. And it's been going ever since. Hello, and welcome to Viewpoints, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hi, I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. We'd like to welcome you to the first session of Viewpoints, a radio program featuring ideas and information for the visually impaired to help you live more independently. Yeah, so that's that's got to be close to a world record for for continuous podcasting, right? Because the whole concept isn't much older than that. And uh, well, I guess you guys started as a radio show, though you're saying, and then it became available as a podcast. Is that right? Right. Well, um, yeah, it's still available through many radio reading services throughout the mm -hmm. United States and Canada, and maybe even overseas. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, and then we ultimately set it up as a podcast, and we've got listeners from over 100 countries. At that point, we stopped counting. <laughs> so tell me about what a typical, uh, you know, just for the, for the sake of our, our listeners, what, what's, what's, a, what's a typical episode like? So we always start out with a short tip of the week that often we'll get from the interview, or sometimes people have a special message that they'd like to share. And then we have people introduce themselves, tell a little bit about their background, what their role is, whatever organization they come from. And then, you know, the main part of the show is just whatever the topic is about. And sometimes we'll cover topics about new technologies so people know about them or maybe future technologies that are under development. And sometimes the show is about people with visual impairments that have just done incredible things. Mm -hmm. So we've done shows with, uh, you know, visually impaired and blind people running marathons or um, hiking the Appalachian Trail alone. And, you know, 
anything that sounds a little bit unusual and people might think, geez, a blind person can't do that. And really the message is that, you know, people with vision impairments can do whatever they want if they set their mind to it. There are no bounds. Well, this week we'll be talking with someone who attended the Paralympics this year in South Korea, and we'll see how she trained and what the experience was like. We spoke with Stacy Manella about a week after she returned home from competing in four different alpine skiing events at the Pyeongchang Paralympics. I'm at some of these stories that we talked to people. We talked to a guy who still drives race cars and he's totally blind. <laughs> I take it drag racing was a hobby of yours at the time? Yes, I'm a second generation racer. Um, I'm the 2005 American Drag Racing League Pro Nitrous World Champion. I was eight years old the first time I went down the drag strip on a mini bike, and I raced my entire adult life. That was really in your blood, I guess. Well, and, and some of the topics we cover are very straightforward things. You know, we talked to a couple of women who knit. You know, there's so many people, they lose their vision. They say, oh, I can't see. I can't do what I used to love doing anymore. And the answer is, if you come up with a new way to do it, you might not be able to do it the same as you used to you probably can keep doing what you used to be doing. And so we've done a lot of shows about people with various kinds of careers. We got a note from some young woman in Malaysia. She wanted to be a pharmacist and the Malaysian government was giving her all this grief. They wouldn't let her do it. You know. So we found some blind, totally blind pharmacist in Wisconsin. We said, would you appear on the show? We did a whole episode. We sent her the link. You know, she sent it to the Malaysian government and she actually, you know, through persistence managed to get further along than she had. And that's a. Uh... That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's really cool. You know, I, I used to ski a lot. I loved skiing and my family all skis. And uh, I gave it up a few years ago because my eyesight got so bad. And my wife's like, you know, come on, there's there. I see blind skiers out there all the time. I'm like, yeah, honey, those people are better skiers than I am, you know, <laughs> but you know, so for the moment I'm not, I'm not pursuing it. It is something I, I let, you know, it just seemed like, you know, the, the, the danger to pleasure ratio was too great once my eyesight got this bad, but I am aware that people are out there doing it, and I tip my cap to them, and maybe someday I'll join them. And we've talked to skiers as well, both downhill and cross-country. In fact, when we wanted to do an episode on skiing, we got connected with this 15-year-old girl in New Jersey. New Jersey's pretty flat, for those who don't know. And she was doing slalom and giant slalom, and her goal was to... um, represent her country at the Winter Olympics in Sochi. Sure enough, two years later, we called her up. We're like, Stacy, can we interview you about what it was like in Sochi? And four years later, we called her up again because she'd just been to Pyeongchang. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you know, even (laughs) even for a teenager in New Jersey, you you can still ski. So let me ask you this. Uh, if if uh, Nancy, if you were interviewing uh, Pete for the for the podcast and saying, you know, you're a successful engineer and podcaster, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, what what questions would you ask him that I uh, that I wasn't smart enough to ask? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do in your spare time, Pete? I enjoy music in my spare time. In fact, at one point in my life, I considered going to music school. I actually went to music school on Saturdays, the Manhattan School of Music prep program when I was um, in high school. But Mm -hmm. um, that was a little bit too serious for me. And quite frankly, it's a lot easier to make a living as a scientist. I mean, I've taken lessons from too many starving musicians over the years. But I've always, um, you know, continued to educate myself in music. And for the past seven or eight years, I've actually had a jazz trio in Rochester. We used to play at many senior facilities, and we played jazz of the 30s and 40s, and that was just What instrument or instruments do you play? I play the piano these days, although I initially started out playing the guitar and then the flute, and I picked up the accordion for a little bit. You know, once you know one instrument and you have a good sense of music theory, it's easier to pick up more instruments. But I concentrate on the piano now. I do some of my own compositions and share them with the trio. It's a lot of fun. I have a friend who was a math major at MIT, and he said the the music theory course he took there was the hardest course he ever took, harder than all the math and physics. <laughs> For me, I mean, unlike the physics, you know, the physics kind of came naturally because I like playing with numbers. But you know, the music theory, I had to think about it. <laughs> 
but you know, it's a whole, yeah, whole he's a very talented sense. musician, but he just said, you know, it's just, it's really, it's just so, um, so complex. You know? Right. But it lays a good foundation. And as I was playing more and playing with different types of music and different people, the music theory was a great foundation for understanding the music, learning more quickly, making some nice arrangements and, and stuff like that. But, you know, some of those things, it just takes time. You know, you got to do it for a number of years. You're listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Coming up. So I had always wanted to be in radio. I was a nerdy kid. So just being able to say, hey, look, you know, like any other adult, I'm going to do this on my own. Hi, thank you for calling Ira. This is Bailey. How can I help you? Welcome to IraCast, a production of Ira Tech Corp. I'm Janine Stanley, your host and producer. And on episode 17, you know, if you watch the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, I was yeah. like Mike, the Mikey. The Mike TV. TV, yes, <laughs> yes. That was me. I mean, I knew everything about TV and I wanted to be in radio. And my parents got me a tape recorder and my cousins and I pretended we had a radio station. You know, we had all these crazy things that we did as kids. And growing up, I thought, you know, this is never going to happen for me. And then all of that stuff went digital and I thought, oh, this is just, it's gone. And when I moved to Columbus, I met some blind people and I met one particular person, Chuck Atkins, who uh, was the chief engineer operator at the local radio reading service. And our radio reading service, audio information service now, but then it was uh, radio reading service. And we were 24 seven, we had live programming and recorded programming. So you were often doing production and on-air stuff in the same studio, which, you know, people who work in commercial radio go, you did what? Wow. <laughs> and uh, I lucked out because at that time they were replacing some staff and they needed to train up somebody. And it was important that that somebody be blind uh, for that particular environment. And Chuck trained me uh, to run the board and be a host. We all pitched in as show hosts. And, you know, it was like you do everything. And uh, it was by far the greatest experience because you get tossed in. You never, you know, we had a schedule. We sort of knew what was going to happen, but occasionally things would come up and you really had to become innovative and learn about uh, the console. And we had a patch panel and all this old stuff that people will go, wow. And then we went digital uh, years later. And I worked at this job, you know, while I went to school to get an MBA, I worked at this job after that, um, as the volunteer coordinator, and then I could always run in the control room if they needed somebody. And so that was a lot of fun. And that's kind of how I came to all of this digital production. Um, mm -hmm. that and is, so then you decided to, you wanted to uh, go to the other side of the mic, as it were? Sort of, yeah. And, and I've <laughs> been doing that kind of all along at the radio reading service, you know, um, hosting live programming, um, doing some special programming, and things like that. And as podcasting evolved, I thought, hmm, hmm. Right. <laughs> I wonder. It's like they finally invented something we're not, we're, oh, we're not at a huge disadvantage. Absolutely. And, you know, in fact, many of us who do it are probably a lot better than some of the sighted folks that start out doing it. Although kind of the commercialization of podcasts mm -hmm. is a little disturbing to me, but, you know, it, it challenges us. Again I'm not sure what you mean commercialization. Kind of There's only 700,000 of them. <laughs> oh, only? Right. <laughs> I met someone oh. just the other day. I met someone who didn't have a podcast. Oh my gosh! No, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. The, the, you probably saw the New York Times had a had an article about you know just uh, how widespread. I guess the yeah. thing I thought was interesting about the article was that like yes, I, I of course I recognize that that uh, enormous uh, numbers of people are starting podcasts and all that. But what was surprising to me was that there were all these people who you know sort of thought they were going to get rich off of starting a podcast. It did not occur oh, yeah. to me the dangerous vision was going to be my you know my path to uh, to a uh, you know solid gold house. Sure. <laughs> 
And that's the whole commercialization angle. Yeah. If you're going to get into it thinking that, mm-hmm. you're doing it for the wrong reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't get into it with a personal podcast. Um, my actual podcasting started with the Guide Dog Foundation, who was my employer for the last 11 years. Mm-hmm. And we wanted a way to reach out to our graduates and, and people who were interested in guide dogs. And I said, you know, we need a podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it was more of a supplementary thing and an addition to our communication plan. And it's the same way now um, at IRA with the IRAcast. That is only part of what I do um, at IRA, just like it was part of what I did on my last job. And I think really, you know, unless you have something really, really good to add to the mix, um, a podcast should only be part of what what it is you're trying to get out there. Mm-hmm. The um so 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 let's let's talk about Ira and where the the podcast fits into kind of the broader Ira ecosystem you know and and so forth right so but you know assuming that that uh, this notion as you say of, of the podcast being part of a bigger puzzle. Sure. Well, talk about um, no no pressure here. Um, <laughs> Jonathan Mosen actually started IraCast, and he was hired um, specifically to help take care of our. Uh, explorers in Australia and New Zealand, and also uh, to do the podcast. And he's got a long and and storied history in radio. And actually, he trained me to use SoundForge back in 2000. So uh, he was kind of my push into the digital world of podcasting and radio and things like that and audio production. And so the IraCast soon became the way to really get a little bit longer form stories out about Ira to our explorers and to everybody who's interested. And then when Jonathan got his new job in New Zealand, um, he called me and the folks from Ira called me and said, hey, would you be interested? And I mm. kind of swallowed my upper lip and said, Absolutely. I'll I'll jump into the breach. (laughs) Yes. And then thinking, wow, you know, as anybody does with a new job where you have to follow such a big personality, can I do this? Can I live up to? And I got some great advice from people at IRA. Just be yourself Mm -hmm. and incorporate what this means to you in what you do. Yeah, And that's really helped me figure, okay, I'm not going to be Jonathan. I'm just going to do the best job I can and try to get the information out there. So it's a work in progress. I, I, I had the, I had the same experience as a professor. I took over a course that was taught by a legendary professor who's been a great mentor to me. And I, you know, the year before I knew I was going to be taking it over, I watched him, you know, I sat in on the course. Yep. And so then, you know, I would try to uh, essentially, you know, sort of, teach the way he taught and kind of, uh, you know, there were stories he would tell to set up a case study or whatever that I would try to tell. And, and students came up to me and they're like, you know, you, you can't be him, you know, you, yeah. you, have, to, you have to find <laughs> yep. your own thing. Don't, don't kid yourself. Yep. Nobody else is him. Yep. And, and, uh, and so that was, that was really valuable that they, uh, they shared that with me, you know, that they had noticed. Cause it's not like they took his course. They could just tell when I wasn't right. being myself. Right. It was obvious yep. to them without having, having seen his version. So let's talk about IraCast. So what's, what are, um, like, well, I'm going to tell you one one funny story about me and podcasts, and then you can tell me about you know sort of uh, what people can expect from episodes of IraCast and and uh, and all that. So uh, my my funny podcast story is that I um so I listen to tons of podcasts. And I will hear these people talking and they're, um, you know, they just sound to me really like very, very charming and intense and so forth. And then one time I was listening to a podcast and it had like a um, a thing from a, it had like mo- a movie clip embedded in it. And it was sort of hard to understand the movie clip because, you know, I listen at like double speed or whatever. Oh, and so yeah. then I, I put the podcast back to single speed to listen to the music, movie clip. And then the hosts of the podcast came back on and I was like, oh, the, these people now sound like idiots. <laughs> <laughs> because my impression of who they were was the double speed impression right. <laughs> of what they sounded, where they sound rat-a-tat-tat. They're like somebody from a 1930s movie or sweet smell of success or something, you know? Yes. And and then you listen to them at regular speed. You're like, it's a it's a very different person. Now, you're, you're a pretty fast talker even at, even at regular speed. Oh, yeah. So, you know, yeah. sound, you, you sound good. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, good. Because I've been told, slow it down a little bit. Oh, sorry. No, oh, no, I totally, I totally don't agree. I, I, I actually, Actually, I've, I've probably said this on the podcast before, but I'm just going to say it again. <clears throat> People have been telling me my whole life to talk so I think they're wrong. Okay. I understand why they say it. But look, if you just look at the, um, at the, at the 
presidential presidents and presidential candidates who are viewed as great public speakers. Yep. Uh, it's all the fast ones, right? Yep. They they do the State of the Union addresses. They go and they count the words and the minutes yep. and they do words per minute. The yep. fastest public speakers we have had as presidents in the last, you know, 50 or 50 or so years are Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, and Bill Clinton, who are also mm-hmm. the three, fa- who are, you know, who are also viewed as the three best public speakers oh, yeah. of of our presidents in my lifetime and the people who are viewed as um as not being good public speakers are the slow ones which is people like you know Al Gore or Hillary Clinton or, or John mm-hmm. Kerry you know who who and so um so it's it's i i just think people are actually confused on this you just got to give them oh, lots of information absolutely. people are in a hurry well, and you know what? You don't have to turn the speed up. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly that's their choice. I, I and, and you know, my view is: look, I, I'm used to reading by voice now, and mm-hmm. so I'm I'm up at like you know 490 words a minute. Mm-hmm. So for you know, once you're doing that, then podcasts seem very slow. Uh, you know, life seems a little slow. I, I sort of want to turn up the speed sometimes <laughs> on people I'm chatting with in real life. Oh, exactly. I, IRL, like, as the kids say. Calls. Yes, where it's like, <laughs> come on, you know. <laughs> so, um, all right. So tell me, tell me about the IRCast and what, what do listeners get out of it and what's, uh, yeah, what's going on there? Well, we hope that the IRCast will, first of all, be informative to you uh, mm-hmm. and secondly, be entertaining to you. And thirdly, be of reasonable length, um, mm-hmm. which is anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. We found that most which things is ten, over, Which is 10 to uh, 22 at double speed. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so we... <laughs> And to have enough audio variety in it, because nobody wants to hear my voice for a long time. I mean, I'm, you know, my voice isn't horrible, but it's not the greatest. And uh, by the way, if you are a podcaster, Biotene is your friend, okay? What's Biotene? (laughs) The whole line of Biotene products. They are products for people who get dry mouth. And the mouthwash is fantastic. If you're Hmm. having one of those times when you just... Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is me today. Um, the mouthwash is great. You just, you know, do a, do a swish of that and that's yeah, all good. good uh, but they also make gum and they make all kinds of lozenges and all kinds of things, which probably aren't appropriate for podcasting. Um, I actually, <laughs> yeah, Jeff, don't you, oh, don't you gum while hosting don't a podcast. Don't chew that's gum. Good. And if, if you're being interviewed, do something with your gum, please. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So yeah. Um, but the IRACast, we want to get news out now, sometimes because news in a tech startup, and yes, IRA is still technically a tech startup, believe it or not. Startup lasts for a long time in the technology world sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're becoming a verb, so who knows? But, uh, you know, um, things can move fast. So usually I'm on a two-week podcast schedule, so sometimes something is old news by the time I get the podcast out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so keeping up with that is difficult. Um, so we want to give you news. We want to give you tech tips. Um, we're going to always try to include a tech tip. We're going to be doing more interviews with uh, with consumers, with our explorers, with our agents, because people love to meet the agents and find mm-hmm. out what they're about. Because these, these agents, I mean, they're like family to you. You know, after mm-hmm. a while, you know certain people, you know their style, you know. Um, they know a lot about you, too. You know, um, so there's that fun thing. And then just just fun, you know, adventures people have, um, things like that. So they will typically be, as my former employer put it when we set up our other podcasts, she said, make it sound like NPR. Mm-hmm. And she gave me an assignment and said, go out and listen to Hidden Brain. Okay. And I listened to Hidden Brain and went, oh, I can do that. You know, um, not quite as well as they can, but, uh, you know, or with the, the level of scientific material, but certainly that format is fairly easy to do. So um, you're using some music, you're using some background, you're using some sound effects, mm-hmm. um, things like that, but you're not overdoing, you no. know. So it's something that anybody from the, you know, 85 year old district court judge who's very dignified and whatnot and the 21 year old kid who's you know are both going to appreciate without feeling like they're being talked down to mm-hmm. so um so now you got me curious you know i i, I usually 
ask guests towards the end of the podcast to tell me about their uh, uh, to, to offer a uh, book recommendation um, because you know I, I basically couldn't read books. Uh, for years um, as I lost my sight and then I, I sort of discovered Bookshare and now I read lots oh, of books so I'm yeah. way behind on like mm-hmm. super entertaining books so of course if you want to share a book recommendation and, and you know I mean if it has something to do with blindness that's fine but that's not particularly what I'm looking for generally you know just looking for things that are super entertaining and fascinating to read but um, but I feel like I should really be asking you for uh, podcast recommendations whether there are <laughs> any uh, any uh, uh, favorites that, uh, that you enjoy I'll, I'll buy you a moment to think uh, by saying that uh, my favorite uh, podcast is a um, uh, is a podcast uh, called uh, The Omnibus uh, with uh, with Ken Jennings and John Roderick. Oh yes, and um, do you know that one? Yeah, mm-hmm. those guys are amazing. You know, Ken Jennings is famous as a as a Jeopardy champion. John Roderick is a yeah. is an indie indie rock performer, and they just kind of uh, tell stories about interesting things about the world. And what's what's funny, the way I came upon it is that I was creating a similar podcast with a good friend of mine, um, and we were just recording our conversations and and you know you know with plans to make it as a podcast. And I mentioned it to uh, to a, a, a guy I know, a college student, and he um, and he was like, "Oh, it sounds like the Omnibus. You should check it out." And then I, I listened. I was like, "Oh man, these guys are good." You know, <laughs> so it, it, it raised the bar as doing? to what we would aspire to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The ours was. I mean, it was it was similar in a lot of ways. That we had we had similar a similar notion of of what's in fact literally a number of the top topics that we either had covered or were planning to cover uh, were things that um, that uh, Ken and John were covering. So so that's that's a, a, a favorite of mine. And uh, my second favorite podcast is a, is a very specialized podcast, uh, which is one about um, I, I like to I, I, I have a side side career as a, as a pro basketball sports writer. And uh-huh. um, I'm from Philadelphia. So uh, my favorite team is the Philadelphia team, the 76ers. And there's a, mm-hmm. a podcast called the with the with the oddball name, the rights to Ricky Sanchez about the Sixers. That's my that's my second favorite podcast. Yes, but I recognize that people who don't uh, care about that particular basketball team wouldn't be interested. But the omnibus, everybody, everybody should should, should oh, listen yeah. to. So now yeah. I bought you a little time. So what what are some things you like to listen to? Well, the beauty of the podcast universe is that there are podcasts about everything, and you can find one that's going to meet your specific, really, really niche interests or not. And I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. I have mm. read all the books. Then oh, I watched I the, the series. Then I cried this last season because mm. we won't even go there. <laughs> but I love some of the Game of Thrones podcasts that are out there. And Game of Thrones, the podcast, is one of my favorites. That's with um, Aaron Hubbard, I think is his last name. Hmm. Um, and he's written a couple books also, you know, in the Game of Thrones universe. So that's a good one. Oh, is that's that right? kind of a, a seasonal one. So you're going to have to... Are people you know, allowed to write books in the in the Game uh, of Thrones universe? Well, I didn't know they that existed. are. Absolutely. Well, and huh. he has written books about, of all things, the gods of Game of Thrones. So he and a huh. theology professor kind of took this fictional universe apart and wrote these books called uh, gods of thrones Mm. and they're really fun actually because there is some academic you know basis behind a lot of what they're talking about Mm -hmm. and then uh Aaron, which is the, his podcast name, mm-hmm. but he throws in you know pop culture references, and mm-hmm. it's it's a great read. They now, are let me ask: really is this a is this a podcast? Read. So I adore those books. I've read them through mm-hmm. either three or four times already. Um, but I haven't watched the TV show because um, I felt like I wouldn't be able to follow the show blind, and it, basically my kids were too young to watch it with me. Yeah. And then yeah. now my kids are getting to the point where they are old enough to watch it with me, but they just want to watch everything on their iPad instead of oh. you know sitting in front of a television. Well, so, so, so my question is: Is that a podcast about the show or about the books? Because a podcast about the books, both. I'm totally going to listen to. Oh, it is both. It <laughs> is right. both. And there's another podcast if you're really into the books called History of Westeros, mm. and that is done by a gentleman named Aziz and his significant other Ashea, and they do a beautiful job. With History of Westeros is very long detailed, geeky discussions about yeah. the books, which are great. All right. That, that sounds like yeah. my kind of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. So those are all a lot of fun. Um, and then for the more professional kind of podcast, I love Grammar Girl. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's my fun one. That's like a 15-minute romp through fun. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, there are so, so many podcasts. Um, this is War is another one because when I worked in the guide dog world, I worked with a lot of veterans uh, mm-hmm. for our service dog program. And that that podcast really is a beautiful mixture of a radio production and some really amazing live interviews um, that the producer does of the podcast. And so um, I really like that format. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it takes a lot of work, though, to put those things together, um, you know, to do that that amount of audio production on something. It's a little bit different from, you know, two people sitting down and talking to each other, like what I do on Main Menu, which is ACB Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another um, show that I do. And uh, we have fun with that one. We just occasionally will sit down and have a roundtable where mm-hmm. we just chat. And we put the clock on and say, okay, whatever happens, happens. We're going to pretend like we're live. Yeah. And so th- there are all different formats of podcasts. Some are much longer. Um, I listen to one called The History of England because I'm into history and linguistics and all kinds of weird things. Mm. And uh, that one is great. And I'm making my way through all of the back episodes of that one. Nice. The um, I uh, yeah. When you listen to a podcast like Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, it's just so beautifully yep. produced and everything, you know. And then and uh, and you're like, wow, that is really, you know, with it, the way he does the interviews and the music and everything oh, else, yeah. and, and just every every word is you know perfectly chosen and spoken, mm-hmm. and and uh, it's kind of amazing actually that there is room. Uh, in people's uh, brain space for, you know, the more shambolic, you know, uh, you know, just two people chatting yep. uh, kinds of podcasts. But, you or, know, it's or, great that you know, people like different person. things. Yeah, one person just talking, talking, talking mm-hmm. about something that they're really passionate about for mm-hmm. over an hour. You know, this person just going on. And I'm capable of doing that, trust me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll mention one book thing since you mentioned War that I'm, I'm reading. An, uh, an old friend of mine from college, I haven't seen him in years, but he wrote a book called The Last of the Dope boys in which he went out and interviewed uh the um the surviving world war uh, first world war oh, veterans wow. um so they were at that time ages 101 to 113 in age wow. and um you know some of them obviously didn't didn't have that much in the way of memories mm-hmm. from 85 years earlier but some of them absolutely did and oh, their stories are incredible his name's uh, richard rubin and uh it's uh it's a wonderful book and uh, i'm really going to have to look that up because my grandfather was in World War One, and he was wounded and got a Purple Heart and all kinds. Of, he was in the Battle of Below, which a mm. lot of a lot of folks were in, yeah. and uh, was captured uh, after that battle and uh, all kinds of stories that are in the family history, but no place else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I've always kind of been fascinated by that period and all of the other things that were going on in that time frame in right. this country besides the war. There was it's not too dissimilar <laughs> yeah yeah uh, no but that's right i think i think um look i you can see that ira is one of these products that uh, like like I literally just downloaded the app the other day uh oh, yeah. and did my first call you know awesome. sort of setup call and i and I haven't really used it for me. You know, I think people, it's its one of these things where people like don't adopt, don't adopt. Actually, podcasts themselves were this way. For the longest time, I'm like, oh, I don't want to listen to those podcasts. Now it's like a, a, a central part of my life. And this, this with Ira, I have a feeling like once I start using yes. it, once I cross over, it's just going to yes. be super integrated into, uh, into everything. That, that aha moment, the Ira moment, we call it, when mm-hmm. you say, oh. That was so sweet and easy. And once you realize, and people have different levels of this. Um, I think what Ira gave to me and what I see it giving in in that aha moment is agency. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we don't realize as blind adults and adults with disabilities how little agency we have sometimes. And sometimes we are painfully aware of it, you know, um, but I think it's it's one of those things that, hey, look, I did this on my terms. I didn't have to feel obligated to anyone. I didn't have that horrible social contract, that Cialdini principle kind of thing where what am I going to have to give to this person to get what I need? Mm-hmm. And how am I going to negotiate that? And all of the stress that goes with it. I, I couldn't believe the first time I used Ira in an airport and I just blew through the airport. I got my, you know, Frappuccino and I got to my gate and then I had to get up and go to the restroom and all that stuff. Things that your average person doesn't even think about are super mm-hmm. stressful for, you know, yeah. um, somebody who's blind and really, may not be that person who just gets up and goes someplace, you know, and, oh, it's okay, I'll ask people, no biggie. That takes a lot of energy, even if you don't realize it. And just having so much more energy was nice. But also just being able to say, hey, look, you know, like any other adult, I'm going to do this on my own. 
you know, some of the people I speak to, um, you know, are, are totally blind, have been totally blind their whole lives. Other people uh, have some vision and, you know, it sort of makes a difference in terms of the listener's understanding of where you're coming from. Oh, absolutely. And I'm one of those <laughs> odd cases. I grew up in the 70s right as mainstreaming and uh, 504, 502 became a thing in the public schools. So I passed and I faked it for years and years. I have, um, <laughs> yeah, I have uh, congenital cataracts and secondary glaucoma. So although I was legally blind for all intents and purposes, I was a sighted kid with the few interesting difficulties. And I had good friends. I had a really supportive family. I had two younger sisters with the same condition. And so it was kind of natural. And being quote unquote blind was something that I wasn't until I was. <laughs> and yeah. anybody with that condition knows that the glaucoma eventually catches up with you and changes your vision. And in my late teens, early 20s, I started losing a lot of vision. I mean, I could draw, I could do all sorts of things, just about everything but drive, because I had no depth perception, which is not mm -hmm. a good thing if you want to drive. So, <clears throat> yeah. But um, <laughs> when I began to lose that vision, I said to myself, oh, crap, I've got to learn to be blind. This is not going away. This is not going to be a good thing. And so I actually moved from rural eastern Ohio where I grew up. Yeah, I'm I'm a hillbilly. I would be proud of that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to own that Appalachian-ness, although I did ditch the accent pretty quickly. <laughs> or at least I tried to anyway. But uh, as my vision decreased and decreased over about a two or three year period to the point where I had a little bit of light perception, which I had for years and years, um, it was tough. It was not an easy go. Um so I would tell people, if you're going through this, be, be kind to yourself because it's hard. It's very, very hard. I had no blindness skills at all going in. Um, and it was really important to me to learn Braille really quickly, to get my mobility <clears throat> set really quickly and try to get myself back on something I could understand at that point. But um, and I actually had both eyes removed um, about five years ago now, I think. And it was the best thing I'd ever done. I wish I had done it much earlier. Uh, <laughs> and as my surgeon said, you know, you do it when you're ready. I can't tell you unless, you know, there's some life-threatening thing. Oh, you need to go do this because it's removing a part of your body. And it was really, really difficult for me to come to that decision. But I'm really glad I did now. Um, so what was the benefit of that? Far less pain um, was mm -hmm. the number one benefit. The number two benefit, though, was cosmetic, really. Um, my eyes were pretty deformed from the glaucoma, and mm -hmm. I didn't realize that. I, I don't know. Nobody said anything until people started <laughs> saying something. And I had a few weird encounters over like the course of a month. And then my youngest sister had emergency surgery to have both of her eyes removed. She had a, a condition that was developing. And I said, okay, you go first and then I'll do it. And she didn't have too many problems afterward. And I mm -hmm. said, okay, all right, all right, all right, I'll do it. And now I get uh, a fabulous ocularist so they get a big shout out to miller eye labs in ohio yay uh but they are mm. wonderful and now people don't believe me when i say no these aren't mine you know stick your finger on your eye <laughs> and watch people go exactly Ugh. So I wanted to, uh, I like to finish up by talking to people about uh, books. Obviously, we talked a little about it before. Um, sounds like we're all uh, book lovers. And, um, and you know, one of the great things with the technologies that exist today are the blind people aren't, you know, I mean, look, obviously, ever since Louis Braille, blind people haven't been totally deprived uh, of reading. But now we really have the ability to read in a way that, as Nancy says, you know, even even a sighted person may find that it's, it's uh, the most effective way uh, for many folks. And uh, because I missed out on a lot of books for a lot of years, when I, you know, didn't have the right technologies or didn't know about the right technologies. Uh, I'm always looking for great uh, book recommendations. Um, people usually need a minute to think about that, so I'll buy you a minute to think by, by mentioning um, uh, 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 some books that are favorites of mine. And, uh, and I was reminded of it by <laughs> David. David uh, Brown, our producer, was, uh, is nice enough to, you know, kind of go on the web and, and pull together a little information about guests for me to, you know, help me uh, prepare. And uh, as, uh, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, once you... Um, once you 
decide to let the New York Times do a wedding announcement for you, you know, that's going to be on there forever. Uh, so therefore, I know that you guys were married at the uh, the HMS Bounty uh, restaurant. Oh my God. And, <laughs> and uh, Mutiny on the Bounty and the three books in the Bounty series are among uh, my all-time favorite books. Have you actually read those those books? No, they're but we're much I, younger. But <laughs> I do have a funny story about. It. We did get married at the ba- HMS Bounty on. on Arandcoit Bay. It was right on the water. It was a beautiful spot, and we, of course, took wedding photos. And we went back ten years later um, with our kids, who were then eight and six, and we took a family photo at the same scene. And we went back ten years later, so the kids were then. 18 and 16 and um, the fire department had burned the place to the ground and there was all sorts of construction debris all over the lawn and we're like well I guess we'll take our family photo somewhere else and we had dinner (laughs) on Erie Canal. That's right. Well, well. So I'll just say a quick word about these books because, especially, I mean, anybody who's reading these, who's listening to this, who loves books, you should check these books out. Right? Obviously, Mutiny on the Bounty is a very famous book. It's been made into a movie many times uh, about a real life incident in which, uh, you know, the the um, the crew of uh, the Bounty, which was a you know British naval ship around the time of the American Revolutionary War, uh, uh, you know, uh, mutinied. They rebelled against their captain, Captain Bly, uh, and. And, uh, and took over the ship. Uh, and so that's an incredible story. Uh, so that's that's book one. Absolutely amazing story. But book two uh, is called Men Against the Sea. What happened is they didn't feel right uh, killing uh, Captain Bly and the um, and the men who were loyal to them to him. So instead, they put them in an open boat in the law, lo- the ship's long boat, you know, sort of the boat that you would use to like row ashore, you know, because you have this giant ship that can't pull up right to the shore. Um, so they put these guys essentially in a in a rowboat, you know, in a large rowboat. Like twenty-two guys, so heavily weighted with men that it was literally the uh, the gunwales, as it were, the edge of the boat was like an inch or two above the waterline. Right, so they were almost sunk, literally just getting in the boat. Uh, and they were twenty-two hundred miles uh, from uh, from Java, uh, which uh, you know the the land uh, that, that they were headed to. And and essentially, uh, Captain Bly, uh, you know, for all that obviously they had mutinied against him because he seemed overly harsh, um, was um, was a uh, tough as nails, an ultra effective com- uh, commander, and essentially got this group of guys with only was o- with only one death, um, got them all to uh, thousands of miles across what I guess Bata- Batavia was what they called it at the time, but now it would be uh, Indonesia, you know, Java, um, got them across the sea. And that's an absolutely astonishing uh, true story of, uh, of uh, naval heroism. Um, and um, of course, Bly and his men eventually uh, get back to uh, England, where they tell the British government about the mutineers. Uh, and so, the the second half of Mutiny on the Bounty is about what happens when the British government does, in fact, eventually catch up with these guys uh, and bring them back for trial. So that's incredible, sort of a legal thriller. Uh, the second half of Mutiny on the Bounty, and then perhaps most amazing of all is the third book, Pitcairn Island, uh, which is about the fact that basically a group of the mutineers, the mutineers split. Some of them stay in Tahiti where the mutiny occurred. Uh, but the others say, well, we can't stay here because we know the British Navy is going to come back here and they're going to arrest us and we'll be hanged for treason. Um, and so uh, these guys basically uh, take the boat, uh, the bounty, and um, and uh, uh, there's like, there's like, these eight guys, and then one night when their girlfriends and some, who are Tahitian women and some other Tahitians, uh, including some Tahitian men, uh, are on the boat, they decide to go out for a sail essentially kidnap these other people and go looking for a place to land. And they end up landing on this island, uh, Pitcairn Island, and they decide to settle there. And in fact, they sink uh, the bounty. They burn it and sink it so that it won't be recognized by passing ships. Um, and so then you have this situation where there's, you know, I, I forget the exact numbers, but let's say eight or ten uh, of these British guys, these British sailors, uh, including Fletcher Christian, the head of the, the mutineers, and then um, and then a bunch of, uh, uh, and then and and then uh, a number of uh, Tahitian men, uh, and then uh, and then a bunch of Tahitian, and then like fourteen Tahitian women, um, and they're not found. Uh, for about 25 years because uh, the the Pitcairn Island was mismarked on the maps by like 100 miles. So the British government didn't know where the island was and couldn't find them. And then 25 years later or something of that ilk, you know, 15 years later, whatever, uh, they finally, the Brits finally get there. And what they find is one uh, English guy, uh, a bunch of women, and like 100 children. 
And then the question is, well, how did all the other men die? And the answer is murder. <laughs> Basically, uh, they all they all they got in these horrible and the story's just uh, beyond belief. And the descendants of these people are still living on this island, and everybody on the island has one of four last names because of these four sailors, including Fletcher Christian, whose whose descendants <laughs> live there. Uh, the 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 whole story. So anyway, read them. Awesome books. So okay, I, that's my next book. Did, did Mutiny I, on the Bounty. Yeah. So so did I buy enough time to come up with some recommendations for me and our <laughs> listeners? <laughs> So well, once I get started on those stories, I, I got to go. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. And by the way, the, the modern history of what's going on in that island is incredible, too. I won't get into all that, but uh, yeah, because it's your turn. <laughs> Mostly, I confess, I listen to murder mysteries and other assorted drivel. Uh-huh. But you can tell I'm, bring- not, I'm not anti-murder in a, in, a, in a novel. I'm anti-murder in real life, but in novels, it's all good. Lately, I've become a fan of Lionel Shriver. She's written a number of books, talk about dysfunctional families. (laughs) And the first one of hers I read was We Need to Talk About Kevin. And you learn on about... The movie just came out a couple years ago, right? Right. And you learn on about page two that Kevin was a school murderer. Um, And so the whole thing's very depressing and distressing, but she writes beautifully and, and brings up all sorts of issues that are worth thinking about. Peeking at me, and she's written a variety and distressing because real the real world out there is sufficiently depressing and distressing. You got anything that'll put a smile on my face? <laughs> so when I was younger, I used to read a lot of literature and science fiction. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it a lot, but these days I read. Nancy's introduced me to more of these murder mysteries and suspense books and all. But among some of the lighter stuff I've enjoyed recently are those series of books by Bachman, and I forget his first name, but he wrote a man called Ove, okay. which was really a great little story about this guy who lives alone his wife died and it's just elegantly written and then he wrote another series of books my grandmother told me what was it my grandmother said to say she's sorry right which was very (laughs) beautiful book and then he wrote two books which i would never have read except for the fact that i liked his writing style because they were about hockey someplace in uh, northern europe or something in some small town i thought that doesn't interest me at all but they were very well written. One is called Bear Town, mm-hmm. and the sequel is called Us and They. Nice. They were very good. That sounds great. Yeah, I agree. Anytime you can find a writer where pretty much anytime, you know, anything they're willing to write about, I'm willing to read about, you know, and, and I think of, I tend to think of that more with, um, you know, with nonfiction writers with, uh, you know, Michael Lewis or, or Mark Bowden or Malcolm Gladwell, whatever, you know, whatever topics they pay. I'm like, okay, this is, this is going to be worth reading. But, um, but we've read some of those too. Is, Sorry, what's that? We've read some of their books too. Yeah, yeah. but uh, but a fiction writer who can you know introduce you to new worlds and and uh, be fascinating on on uh, you know in many different areas is uh, is worth his weight in gold, his or her. Uh, yeah, and and I little... just like to I just like to add one more recommendation yeah, since you started out. You started out asking us all this stuff about being physicists for people who are in the general public and maybe you know don't want to go as deeply into some of these science topics. Michio Kaku mm-hmm. has written a whole lot of, you know, popular books that are accessible to the general public. And he does a great job of explaining very complex. Yes, I um, read I read a, uh, a fantastic uh, one. Um, and I'm trying to remember the time it was it was sort of about the, the future, like what was coming in the near future or something like that. And it was uh, wonderful. They, yeah, uh, he's great. That's uh, if you want something a little bit more irreverent which I read probably last year sometime. It's called Lamb, the, the Word According to Biff. And if you're familiar with the Bible and the New Testament, mm-hmm. this is kind of a little satire. Biff is supposed to be, you know, they talk about Jesus in the Bible when he's born until he's 12. And then you don't hear anything until his last year of life. Well, this is all the intermediary stuff, and Biff is his best friend growing up. And it's just really interesting if you know these Bible stories to see kind of, you know, satirically how they put these boys into some interesting situations. And uh, it, it, it's kind of humorous. I, I, I read and enjoyed that book very much. And the way I came upon it was through a very odd uh, reading project I did by accident, which is to say that I had, um, I read an excerpt from a book called Fluke. And it was a book about the role of randomness and probability in life, which is sort of an ongoing interest of mine, you know, as a, as a sports fan, as a politics junkie, and as other things. I feel like constantly what's 
happening is there will be something and people will be twisting themselves into knots to explain what happened when it's just like, it was just luck. There was a tiny gust of air and it moved the ball a quarter of an inch and that's why the right. pass was incomplete. Yep. And it doesn't mean that anybody's a choker and it doesn't mean that the guy on the other team has the heart of a champion. It's just something that happened, you know? Uh, but yeah, the world yeah. doesn't like those kinds of explanations. Um, and of course, in financial markets, which is sort of where my career is, you know, so much is a combination of, you know, kind of a tiny bit of skill being drowned in a sea of this kind of randomness and luck when people do investing and stuff. And yet, again, you know, if you go back to people with the story that says, oh, well, we underperformed this quarter because, you know, uh, we got unlucky, uh, you know, people aren't people aren't very receptive to that. Okay, so I go on Bookshare. And I type in fluke and book shows up fluke. And I, and I couldn't remember the oh. name of the author, but I, uh, so I clicked on it and he wrote the one about the whales, and right? Downloaded this book about whales. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. then I'm like, oh, okay, I got the wrong one. And so then I went and I clicked fluke again, and then it downloaded a, a novel about the presidency of Warren G. Harding, uh, who, <laughs> you know, became president. And then I got a third one and I got the right one on the fourth try. And then I said, well, Gosh, I mean, this really is a fluke. I'm going to read all four of these books just <laughs> as a uh, as a test, you know, just just to see. This will be the fluke project, and I yeah, read them yeah. all. And they were oh, the fourth one was about somebody who it was like a person who like got reincarnated as a dog and is living their life as a dog and has to sort of figure out that they're the dog now. And so they, and anyway, all four books were very enjoyable, all all totally different, of course. Um, and um, and um and and yes, and one of them was by uh what's his name? Christopher um the guy who wrote Lamb also wrote this book, Fluke, which was one of the strangest books I've read because it, it starts off because I had no idea what to expect. That's the beauty of, of it, of course, is that I came to this book with no expectations of any kind. And so uh this is this is torture. This this phone keeps ringing and I don't know how to make it stop. Okay. Um, <laughs> This is my desk phone. This is a problem of being blind. There's like a hundred controls on this phone, and I don't know which one is the one that makes the ringing stop. I, I thought by taking the phone off the hook, it would stop, but of course, it's a high-tech phone that doesn't, uh, it doesn't care if it's oh, on. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, uh, I'm sure that's fascinating to our audience. So, okay, so to finish this, so I'm reading this book, which seems to be a book in which there are these uh, plucky marine biologists, and maybe, oh, the Navy is doing tests, and it's going to be bad for the whales, and we care about the whales, and then finally, the person encounters the whale, and then it like opens up and it turns out it's like a, a whale-shaped submarine or like living <laughs> like all right i didn't see that coming you know and and uh, right, that's, a, that's right. a wonderful book and that led me to lamb uh and other uh, other books uh other books by that author so um if i were if i were a fast googler i would look up his uh his name his first name is christopher um, yeah i don't remember his last name yeah well if you like strange books like that i have one more strange one for you which again is a little irreverent it's called what in god's name by simon okay. rich and okay. it starts out, there's God up in heaven running Heaven Incorporated, and he's kind of bored of this job. He's been doing it a long time. <laughs> the, uh, that's, uh, that sounds, that's, uh, that sounds really good. The, um, What in God's Name by Simon Ray. You know what? Why, why have I heard of him? He wrote some, he, I think he also wrote a book somebody made a movie or TV show out of, right? Oh, he's hysterical. He recently graduated from Harvard, so you may have even had him as a student. Oh, that's interesting. All right. I think he was the editor of the, editor of the Lampoon for a while. And oh, very good. Um, he, he writes, I think, screenplays and for TV. Yeah, and I think I think I read was reading something about uh, a movie or TV show that was made out of his work. All right, Simon, that 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 one I'm going straight to as well. All right. This is great. So we could talk about books uh, uh, forever, and uh, and and it would be uh, it would be awesome because I'm always looking for more. So I might I might shoot you guys emails for more recommendations. <laughs> but uh, I don't want to take all day of yours. Thank you so so much for um, for being with us on Dangerous Vision. This has been a real a real pleasure, and uh, and everybody uh, uh, should listen to um, to your podcast. Eyes on Su Eyes on Success. Do I have that right? Yep. Yes. www.eyesonsuccess.net. Available right. over many radio reading services, streaming through ACB Radio, iBlink Radio, and several others, and also available as a podcast or a download from our site. And Fantastic. on iTunes, and you can even ask your smart speaker to play Eyes on Success podcast. You've been listening to the Dangerous Vision podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown.